You know, the one thing I think that the ECA has done, you know, done a very good service to the reps is having a rep council, having the ability for the council to you know, collaborate with the distributors and with the manufacturers. So, uh, you know, that was a really big step in the right direction in the ECA and it reformed uh, the councils and reformed how uh, all the collaboration that can happen uh, between them. Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to the holiday edition of the Channel Channel. And I'm pleased to welcome our guests this week, Eleanor Hearn from Crowley and Associates, the president of Crowley and also the chairperson of our manufacturer's rep console. So welcome, Alan. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. We start each episode by asking our guests a question, all the same question, and that is, what is your favorite word? Huh. That's a good question. Um, I think my favorite word is always do the right thing. I know that's not a word, but do the right thing. Uh, every time a manager comes in my office and whatever that scenario is, it's do the right thing. I guess that's how I was... Uh, raised and how I was brought up in the business. So uh, do the right thing, always. Very good. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how you were raised and how you grew up. Tell us a little about your where you're from and, and your childhood. Yeah, okay. Um, so I've always lived in uh, southern New Hampshire, and I grew up in a, in a small town, and I left New Hampshire for about three years, and that's when I left and open up our Crowley office in New Jersey. But other than that, uh, I've always lived here in New Hampshire. Uh, right now I live in a very small village. It's early 1700s. Uh, I always laugh because there's no stop signs. And if there's ever a uh, slowdown with traffic, it's only because there's turkeys crossing the road. <laughs> so, uh, very historic town, uh, you know, typical New England town. And uh, just so happens to uh, only be 65 miles from Boston. Um, so it's kind of the best of both worlds, rural and, uh, and not too far from, uh, from the city. So how did you get from there into this crazy electronic component business? Yeah, it's got a little history to it. Um, I have to give my uh, high school um, electrical um, class actually credit for for this actually, because I wanted to be an electrician. That's what I really wanted to do. So uh, taking his class, um, he had introduced me to someone who was looking for um, basically a laborer to go work in a wire wound resistor factory and the other division made uh, solar temperature controls. So I started working at the temperature control side doing, uh, as one can imagine, the labor work, you know, vinyl assembly, um, you know, packaging. We're a small company of about 15 people. And um, as time progressed and I learned more, and I was very blessed because back then um, there were uh, quite a few people who were, you know, my senior that actually wanted to see me do well. So they kind of took me under their arm and, and taught me a lot of things. But um, 
after about my first year in college, I started getting into more complex things like doing some designs and some smaller circuitry uh, for um, temperature control units. And uh, we were servicing the solar market to start with, and the tax credits were pulled. And the company pretty much was going to go bankrupt. And my boss at the time said, well, you got a couple days or a couple weeks to figure it out, um, or you don't have a job either. So clearly that was my motivator was to keep my job. Um, so uh, I worked there seven years, and uh, you know, I worked through college. I ended up doing uh, some design work, which was uh, – Still fun, uh, and it's funny you see it a lot today. I designed uh, photovoltaic and inverter systems. We called it the silent generator. Our market was uh, RVs, so we would put uh, these solar panels and inverters on RVs uh, for full-time RVers, and um, that took off quite well. Changed the whole landscape of the company, and um, you know, from there, um, you know, I left. Um, eventually came to, to work for Crowley Associates. So, you know, I actually was hired uh, by David Crowley actually twice. The first time I actually backed out uh, because of fear of leaving the engineering world into sales. And then the second time, of course, I said yes, and that was uh, 27 years ago. So that's how I got into the rep. Tell us a little bit about Crowley, what markets you serve and what types of products. I would consider Crowley Associates to be a uh, electromechanical power passive RF uh, specialty company, uh, as well as you know design service work. Um, you know, being from you know the Northeast down into the Maryland Virginia area, we have a lot of different um, you know geographic um, concentrations uh, of customers. In New England, there's a lot of hot spots for. Uh, for the startup communities and, you know, the Boston, uh, MIT type school applications, uh, medical is uh, an extremely um, active area. IOT is as well. So our customers range, um, you know, in each geography has its own unique footprint. So, um, you know, each one of our technology building blocks kind of applies itself to um, across all the territories or specific into, into one of them. And how many employees do you have? Uh, we have 26 employees. Um, we have our main office located here in New Hampshire, and then we have uh, we wagon wheel out to about four offices across the other geographies, mostly smaller offices where you know, we don't need much space. Okay. So as I mentioned on the out on the onset of this call, you're the current chair of the manufacturers rep council. Tell us a little bit about how you first got involved with the CIA. Yeah, actually a good friend of mine, Mike Swenson, had called me one day and said, hey, I, you should join the ECIA. And I knew literally uh, nothing about the ECIA at the moment, or at that moment. And uh, I asked him what it was all about. And it was only a, a few reps that were on board at the time. And, you know, Mike didn't have to do a lot of explaining to me about why to join the ECIA. I thought it was an organization that was, you know, expanding into including the rep. And uh, I wanted to be part of that, you know, from, from the onset. Um, later on in years, uh, John Denslinger, he called me and said, hey, guess what? You're on the board. That was the old board form, uh, formation. And that was a number of years ago. And that's how I actually got into working with the ECA uh, you know, further. Um, but, um, you know, ECA kind of came, uh, came to me by way of uh, 
And we have Mike Swenson. How has ECIA been a value to you and to your company? Yeah, good question. Um, for me personally, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from the ECA working with some, you know, tremendous people, uh, people that I would not have had an opportunity to work with um, if it wasn't for ECA and getting that introductions. Um, I've sent a number of people to the ECA executive conference and, uh, you know, they've got a lot out of going to the conferences, uh, various speakers and meeting different people, relationships that they built that are, you know, carrying with them today. Um, some of the other benefits you know, that I have is the, you know, the analytics and data that ECA provides. It's something that I utilize for a number of things. Um, we just had a uh, meeting in, uh, in Japan, and um, a lot of uh, the executives there want to know what's happening in North America. And, you know, the data that ECA posts uh, was extremely helpful and was um, really kind of a bit of a backbone of how we can explain uh, you know, what the North American market is actually doing. Um, you know, between the DTAM and the Interconnect Passive uh, reports, you know, amongst just a, a number of things. So um, I've also utilized uh, a lot of this information for um, manufacturers that, um, whether they be European-based or wherever, that have not actually interface with reps before, uh, you know, the information that uh, ECA has also is very helpful in that, um, you know, first meeting to explain to them what is a rep and, uh, you know, having some good industry data behind it. So it's been about a year since we formed the councils and you took over leadership for the rep council. Tell us a little bit about the, the rep council, what it's all about and some of the key things you're working on there. Yeah, it's actually uh, really great uh, to work with the people that we have. Um, you know, early in the formation, we um, you know selected a number of, of a total of twelve of us that we range um, from all the markets, pretty much from the east coast to the west coast, um, in different sizes and you know obviously different uh, skill sets, which is really nice and kind of broadens things out. Um, you know, so. Rep Council being as dynamic as it is, uh, you know, we're pushing, uh, you know, for some initiatives that are, uh, I think, going to be very beneficial um, upon their completion. One of them that I can talk towards, I can talk to a few of them, actually. Um, I'll start with the first one, which is the uh, best practices of uh, training uh, distributors. So we're putting together um, a document. So far, it's gone out to a thousand contacts within distribution, asking them questions like, "What's the most effective way to train your people? Uh, time? How much time do you have? How much is technical? How much is uh, you know strategizing in accounts? Uh, the do's, the don'ts." And we've gotten ter terrific feedback on that, and uh, we're taking it through a series of five different stage gates, if you would, uh, and then we'll circle back. Uh, all the way after it goes through the manufacturers, back to the reps, distributors, and we'll have something really um, as comprehensive, I think, as uh, ever uh, put together on that. Time is money. Just, just to clarify, that that's product training for the outside folks at the branch level. Is that correct? Or yeah, actually, yeah. I'm sorry, I should have elaborated on that. Uh, we asked um, similar questions for the outside, the inside and their FEEs um, for what we, they would consider would be the key attributes for those three different audiences. 
but but relative to the manufacturer's product. So so the manufacturers you represent, you'll be able to come in with more of a consistent, effective way to to train the branches. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean, they want you know the distributor branches are very. Um, you know, the last thing you really want to have is another Monday morning meeting where people um, are coming in and not hitting the nail on the head. And that's right. what it's um, you know aiming to do. Um, the second initiative, which is actually um, been the most uh, amount of um, work and I think will have a tremendous impact and I think this will be very good for ECA as well, is we began um, looking at a lot of inefficiencies um, that are in the industry as a whole. And, you know, the manufacturers have uh, um, the need for real-time data and the process of which that happens has a lot of redundancy along the way where a rep enters an MBO in their own system and it makes its way through to typically an insight person then um, turn back into the manufacturer system. So there's three or four people who touch that before it ever makes its way. Um, so uh, a proof of concept scope of work's been formed. Um, it's going through the process now uh, for um, the board to review on its merit. Um, Tell me a little bit more about how, how this works. What, what's the efficiencies that we're seeing or that we will see with this system once it's implemented? Yeah, so today um, we have an inside salesperson who is logging on to a secure area where the manufacturer they gain access to and they enter the information into their system. So currently, uh, and I won't name the names of the two CRMs, but they're two of the largest that are out there. Um, they're in a quote-unquote sandbox, which basically means a development area. It's, you take a copy of their production environment and put it to the side. And you can literally watch the sales engineer update their NBOs as part of their course of their normal business. And it will real time actually edit and modify and add the latest information to the NBOs of the manufacturers. So it's really um, the common API interface, which is a human, is now directly the sales engineer to the manufacturer and um, you know, skipping through all of the other um, things that can you know, lead up to delays in getting the information to, uh, to the manufacturers. So you're eliminating having to enter this multiple times, once in your system and then another time in the manufacturer system. Is that right? Yeah. So the typical flowchart now is pretty complicated. If sales engineer finishes his call, maybe it takes him a couple of days to update our system. Our system goes to a person. Our person goes to the manufacturer system. Uh, enters it in the proper areas, and then this cycles every month in multiple times a month, times multiple opportunities. So we end up having 20 to 25% or more uh, of a single inside person's time actually transcribing information from a sales engineer over into a system. And that whole process actually uh, not only delays uh, the information flow, uh, but is you know, really not a good use of resources. Right. No, it sounds great. So when can we expect um, other reps and manufacturers to be able to take advantage of this? And, and what role is ECI playing in all this? Yeah, uh, the ECA has been great. Um, you know, at the last meeting we had in Savannah, we, uh, you know, we actually 
uh, had a separate meeting with the manufacturer council and introduced this to um, get a good understanding of you know, what uh, how that would be perceived and it was perceived with a you know a great amount of interest and a lot of uh, um, additional information <clears throat> that they uh, they requested um, which is actually uh, being finalized right now um, what's next for the ECA is actually the board uh, will look at it on its own merit and once the board um, makes their decision um, it immediately launches into this proof of concept which should be somewhere in the vicinity of six to eight weeks from start to finish and what that will entail is all of the technical white papers all of the ways that other companies who want to also take advantage of um, you know the same exact process um, working model um, you know so webinars seminars how to's to really can help uh, the rest of the manufacturers and ECA actually would be the good conduit for that um, you know, as ECA is looked upon as you know bringing um, a lot of efficiencies to our channel uh, this certainly will be one of them and so without getting too far into the weeds what's kind of the underlying technology that makes all this work yeah there's there's a lot of ways <clears throat> to get uh, from point A to point B um, the subject matter expert that we've worked with they're using what's called an ETL it's extract transform load and it was picked uh, based on a number of things one is the data actually just goes literally from the sales engineer into the manufacturer system. It has no, um, it's a direct connect, it replaces that particular person. So, you know, that's the, there's many different uh, ETLs, there's hundreds of companies that are you know, ETL based. So it's been out there, it's been proven, and we felt that was, you know, a, a good way to go. Uh, especially based on some feedback the manufacturers rep council actually did and uh, talking with the other manufacturers as far as um, <clears throat> areas that they felt would be important for, for them to consider it. ETL, so they th this would extract the data out of one system, translate it, and be able to load it into the other. That's, the, that's what the ETL means in very simple form? Yes, and... Um, you know, along the way, um, and this is what the you know, proof of concept is so important. I give you a good example. Um, every distributor and manufacturer and rep may call the account a different name. So I'll just use you know, account X, account X, comma Inc., et cetera, et cetera. So there's along the way getting the information from point A to point B. Uh, you know that uh, proof of concept really does help frame. Um, you know, some of the needs that people uh, would have when they want to embark on this initiative themselves. So um, ETL, Extract, Transform Load, it's actually, um, you know, there's, um, it, it's extremely commonplace. Um, our company uses it today, that's a good example, where we take our sales and our sales data from our CRM, quote, samples, design, registration, et cetera, and we use an ETL tool to bring in our sales and commissions, which enables us to look for things like quote to win ratios, status of a design registration, status of an MBO, is it generating revenue, et cetera. So, you know, we've been using it. Um, and <laughs> to be honest, until I got involved as deep as I am, I didn't actually know that data transference was via ETL. I think a lot of us don't really think about that every day. Of, you know, how does the data go from you know, point A to point B, 
with the exception of you know, security being a primary concern. Great. Well, what else do you have on the docket with the Rep Council? So, um, what we are working on now is uh, we've got two initiatives, and one we're just talking about the most effective way uh, to accomplish this, whether it be through collaboration with um, with the ERA or us, you know, you know, trying to fill in some gaps as to where they are. I think there's still uh, a lot of work to be done on the function of a rep and what they do. Um, again, there's a lot of the um, world that doesn't actually know the exact um, you know, roles and responsibilities a rep has. Uh, we have uh, we have not begun it yet. We're um, going to try to wrap up the ETL one, um, which like I said it will be shortly. And then we're going to launch into things such as helping our manufacturers when they come up with new product introductions. What's the best way to bring that new product introduction out uh, via training to the distributors, samples, uh, roadmaps, and um, you know, just really putting together some uh, you know, best practices. We all have a tremendous amount of experience being uh, the ones that are taking the NPIs now. We feel um, similar to how we're structuring the um, surveys through the distributor um, and distributor council. Uh, we'll do the same thing through the rep and the manufacturer's council. Alan, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the manufacturer's rep community, and, and how do you think the ECA can best help to address those challenges? Yeah, we the reps certainly aren't immune to a lot of the factors that are happening now, whether it be uh, the tariffs um, and a lot of conversations about, um, you know, the evolving customer and the changes they have. Um, you know, the one thing I think that the ECA has done, you know, done a very good service to the reps is having a rep council, having the ability for the council to uh, collaborate with the distributors and with the manufacturers. So, uh, you know, that was a really big step in the right direction when ECA kind of reformed uh, uh, the councils and reformed how uh, all the collaboration that can happen uh, between them. And, you know, one important factor that um, is the manufacturers' reps Rep and the Rep Council have a tremendous opportunity to um, work hand-in-hand uh, in, hand in the initiatives that the other councils are working on. Um, there's plenty more collaboration that can be done uh, as these um, initiatives are starting to come uh, full circle. Um, you know, we really, uh, it's a unique opportunity to work with the industry leaders and, and be part of uh, hearing their challenges and offering the solutions that we think we can bring in and vice versa. And how about those reps that aren't currently on the council? How can they best stay informed of what is being worked on by you and your team? Yeah, that is definitely something that's a big topic for us. Um, we are um, kind of planning out how we can communicate best with them. Um, some of the early thoughts that we have <clears throat> are organizing uh, separate um, conference calls uh, just for the reps. Um, that they can actually dial in and the rep council can you know, bring everyone up to speed with the initiative we have, uh, gather some of their feedback of what they might believe would be uh, of greatest interest uh, to them because we're 12, uh, only 12 strong in the council, but there's a number of other reps that are there. So they would really have an opportunity to learn what we're doing 
Um, also be a good steering committee of sorts to the council and the initiatives that the council is currently working on. Great. And we certainly hope to have you as a regular guest on this podcast as another means to keep reaching out to the, our whole community. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. Well, Alan, we're, we're just about out of time, but just one more question more on the personal front. You know, as when, when you're not busy running Crowley and managing this rep council, what, what do you do to keep busy on the other days? Yeah, the thing that keeps me sane are there's usually there's a, there's a couple of things, but uh, I've been restoring old cars uh, my whole life. So I was 16 years old and 12 hours, and I had my very first car on the road burning rubber and being obnoxious. So <laughs> I've, I, I like the old uh, 60s, 70s muscle cars, so I've done about seven of them. But um, something that is harder for me to do now uh, with a young family and grandchild, et cetera, is uh, scuba diving. I've, I've been diving for over 25 years, advanced into a technical diver, um, and doing, um, you know, mainly doing wreck diving. That's what I have uh, liked to do. The um, passion that I have is collecting antique historical bottles, and you know, we have a lot of so the first seaport here in the, in the country was in New Hampshire. I've done everything from deep water dives to archaeological dives, helping people measure ships that came in from the 1600s. So, yeah, those are the things that are uh, a lot of fun to when uh, you're on the plane or you're somewhere, you can uh, drift back into on those busy days. Favorite place to dive? Favorite place to dive would not be anyone else's favorite place. It's, uh, it is usually where... Uh, it's hard to get to. The water isn't very good. So New England uh, in the uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire area, which has been a shipping port from uh, the 1600s on, that's where uh, seven knot currents, it's not particularly enjoyable. But I have dove on some World War II uh, planes and ships in the Hawaii Caribbeans, and those are uh, a little more enjoyable. My wife and I like to dive, but she'll only go if the water's at least 80 degrees. So I think Portsmouth's out. Yeah, 60, you're lucky. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for sharing. And like I said, we'd like to get you back on, on uh, in a couple months and keep regular communications going. So uh, for now, we'll sign out. But thank you again, Alan. Okay, thank you, Bill. We hope you've enjoyed this holiday edition of the Channel Channel and that you'll come back to us next year. Our next guest in early 2020 will be Don Alario, and we'll be talking about the Global Industry Practices Committee. But for now, happy holidays and have a great new year, everybody.